Hey everyone, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. Professor Eric Huntsman has an infectious enthusiasm when he talks about Christmas. He's up for all the fun, the decorating, the shopping, the lights, and the gift giving. He also has a deep intellectual curiosity and many years academic research into the historical development of this holy day. And of course, most importantly, he has a profound devotional attachment to the holiday's namesake, Jesus Christ. So it's only natural that he would spend years developing ways to help his family, students, and community find more meaning throughout the Christmas season. One way that he's done that is through the observance of Advent. Much more than just the calendar many of us think of checking off the days in December leading up to Christmas, Advent is a traditional Christian season that's been observed for at least 1,500 years and is marked by the four Sundays prior to Christmas, each of which celebrates a theme of Christ's birth, hope, love, joy, and peace. In today's conversation, Eric shared with us the background and purpose behind Advent and some of its symbolism, how he celebrates it, and what he recommends for anyone looking to observe Advent as part of creating their own traditions or rituals. And as it happens, this podcast episode is being released the day before the first of the four Sundays in Advent, falling this year on December 3rd. Eric is a professor of ancient scripture at BYU who received his PhD in ancient history and classics from the University of Pennsylvania. In April of 2022, Eric began a two and a half year appointment as the academic director of the BYU Jerusalem Center, and he returned just weeks ago after the Israel-Hamas war began. Eric had some very tender observations about that experience and how it relates to some of what we're talking about in this episode. So we really think you're gonna enjoy this conversation. We'd also really encourage you to check out the show notes. We're linking to several really great resources from Eric and others that we're really excited to use this year as we do our best to build our own Advent tradition. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. And with that, we'll jump right in. All right. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you back. We loved the episode that you did with Zach in the spring, and it made our Easter so meaningful. So we were really excited that you'll come back and walk us through Advent. Sure, sure. Um, So months ago, we had the Maxwell Institute had just come out with a book about ancient Christianity, and we had Christian Heal in here. and, And we had this conversation and, and the thing that struck me over and over was how unrecognizable Christianity would have seemed for centuries to some, to, to people like us. And in one of those, one of those ways I think was that there was no celebration of the birth of Christ at first. Like right. it wasn't this holy day and that it never It's a really unusual thing. The idea of a birthday celebration or an anniversary yeah. celebration was a very big thing in Egypt and a very big thing in Rome. So when Rome shifted from a republic to an empire, celebrating the emperor's birthday or this emperor's accession or the emperor's wedding was a big deal. But the early Christians, you know, this was kind of like pagan, right? Mm-hmm. And so they really resisted that. But as Christianity became more widespread in the Roman Empire and there were more Egyptian and Italian becoming Christian, they had this impulse, right? And of course, it's also the same thing as much as I love Easter and Holy Week. We're not enjoined anywhere in the New Testament to celebrate Christmas Mm. or celebrate Easter. Mm. The word Easter only appears once in the entire New Testament, the book of Acts, and it's actually a bad translation of Passover. Paul says, I need to get back for Easter. It means Passover. So, you know, here are these fundamental things, right? God becoming man, right? The Jehovah becoming the babe of Bethlehem and Jesus suffering, dying, and rising again for us. And yet we're never told to celebrate it. And yet they're the most momentous events in human history. (laughs) Of course we want to celebrate, right? And so these celebrations kind of developed organically. And you'll sometimes see people, particularly our evangelical friends, you know, struggle with, you know, I don't want to call it Easter. That sounds pagan or, Mm -hmm. you know, Christmas trees are bad because they come, you know, from the Norse North or something. You know, my feeling is 
people, you know, the Lord finds people where they are and we mm -hmm. build upon whatever truth and, and feelings they have. Why not celebrate those things, yeah. right? Yeah. And why not incorporate local traditions as long as you are always intentionally keeping a Christocentric focus yeah. on it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did those early Christians, early Christians, were they uh, celebrating something? Did they have holy days that were just not around? The Lord's Day. So yeah. it was the week, the commemoration of the resurrection was Sunday, mm. right? I mean, this is the reason we moved from the Jewish Sabbath on the sixth day, seventh day of the week to a Christian Sabbath on the first. Mm -hmm. And this is another discussion for another time, but Gay Strathen has just edited a collection up called Sacred Time about the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And I did the chapter on John, which I called Bringing Forth a New Creation, where I, I made an argument based on the text of John that it wasn't just the resurrection, but that Jesus was bringing forth a new creation through his atonement. And just as the father rested on the seventh day when his creation was finished, Jesus's was finished Easter morning. Wow. So that's what they celebrated was the weekly, yeah. right? The Lord's Supper will commemorate totally. his suffering and death, and then we will rejoice that he rose again. And that was the celebration weekly. Yeah, very cool. I can see, by the way, as we're talking, your eyes totally light up when you <laughs> when you talk about something. Like well, I am an unabashed Jesus freak, okay? Yes. <laughs> I will just say that. And um, I, as we were talking before this episode, and I was giving you a little bit of my personal history, I'm like a, you know, a seventh generation Latter-day Saint. My family's from Southern Utah, but I was raised the greater part of my childhood in Pittsburgh. And yep. most of my friends were Roman Catholic and Presbyterian. And then the middle of my junior year of high school, which is a terrible time to move, I moved to Jackson, Tennessee, which I mm -hmm. like to call the buckle of the Bible belt. And all my <laughs> friends were Baptist and born again Christians. Yep. And then when I went to grad school, I lived in the Jewish neighborhood. So I, I had friends and people I was close to in traditional Christianity, evangelical Christianity, and then Judaism. And even though I have always been a faithful Latter-day Saint, I just could not help but see the sincerity and the belief of these people. Yeah. And I really always took to heart what Joseph Smith and Gordon Hinckley have both said, which is, take what you have, which is good, and we'll add to it. And and my friends, when I was in high school, I used to belong to an organization called Young Life, which is the Christian Evangelical oh, yeah. Youth League. And, you know, their just 100% focus on Jesus changed me. It changes the way I teach. It changes the way I write. It changes the way I experience the gospel. And one of the reasons I am such an advocate of Latter-day Saints more intentionally celebrating not just Easter, but Holy Week, and not just Christmas, but Advent, is I think these are the two places where we have points of contact with the rest of the Christian world. Our theology will always be different. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of the atonement and the plan of salvation will always be more expansive. But to come together, regardless of when things actually happen on the calendar, to come together when so much of the world is celebrating, not just celebrating the divine conception, miraculous birth of Jesus, but anticipating it, which is what Advent's about, and then celebrating the events from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, that's where we have so many things in common with them. And it's two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, it's a chance for us as Latter-day Saints to come together with them. But it's also a chance for them to present to us, here's some traditions yeah. yes. that you can draw upon, yeah. right? Which I don't feel like is betraying the restoration. Not at all. You know, no. I mean, Joseph, a lot of the early church in the 19th century really was shaped by Presbyterianism and Methodism. Because that was the context out of which Joseph Smith and his family and the early Latter Saints arose. You know, if the church had been restored in Greece, maybe our church architecture would look a lot different, yeah. and maybe we'd have 
you know, yeah. more mystical art, right? We'd yeah. have, I, you know, I mean, my point is there's nothing wrong with these great traditions. And if the early leaders of the church drew upon their context yeah. and you've got this, you mentioned Christian Heal, well, he's English, right? Yeah. And I was just in the United Kingdom on my way home from Jerusalem when the war broke out and they were already getting ready for Advent. So I went oh. to Evensong in St. Paul's and they said, it's the second Sunday before Advent, you know? Oh. And I thought, wow, there is this long tradition. One of the places I took Elaine and Sam, my wife and my son, is we went to Old Sarum, which is one of the earliest sites of Christianity in, in England. And I, I remember thinking at the ruins of the original church before Salisbury Cathedral was built, thinking people have been worshiping the risen Lord here wow. since before William the Conqueror, right? And some of these Advent traditions we're going to talk about have been going on since then. That's beautiful. Wow. I mean, we love this concept of holy envy. Christopher mm -hmm. Stendhal. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So yes. he and was the the bishop, the primate, they call it, of the Lutheran Church in Sweden. But he was also an academic. He, he met um, Richard Bushman and oh. Truman Madsen. Well, maybe it was Truman. It was Truman Madsen when he was actually a professor in Harvard Divinity School. Mm. Oh. But Christopher Stendhal coined the term, or at least popularized it, when the Stockholm Latter-day Saint Temple was about to be dedicated. Is that right? Really? Right. They were having open what? houses, and as always the case with open houses, there's a lot of anti-Mormon sentiment. We called it anti-Mormonism then because we were Mormons then. But anyway, <laughs> um, he articulated what he called the three principles of religious understanding. Okay. The first was, if you want to know more about a tradition, ask a practitioner, not someone else. So if you want to know about Islam, talk to a practicing Muslim. Yep. Yeah. Okay. If you then um, don't compare your best to their worst. Mm -hmm. And the third was cultivate a healthy sense of holy envy. And Bishop oh. Stendhal did that saying, I walk through the Latter-day Saint temple as it's getting ready to be dedicated. And it's so <laughs> beautiful. And it is, and the idea of linking families together and everyone having a chance to accept the gospel is beautiful to me. That's oh where Holy gosh. Envy came from. Yeah, it's about us. No, I wrote. Yeah, yeah did you not know amazing. that? I, did, no. I wrote a little book for Desert Book called "Worship: Adding Depth to Your Devotion," and I talk oh about Holy gosh. Envy in the introduction, oh so you can look up. That is so cool. exciting! I had no idea. Yeah, that we yeah. actually no, we were actually wondering just a few weeks ago where the term comes. There from. it is. I just yeah, we gave were it legitimately. To you. Yeah, wow. We didn't. So Google you know, I just enough. recently yeah. returned from Jerusalem, where I was the academic director, and it's something I'm really, really stressed with each of my semesters of students. Here we are. And as you go to the Western Wall and watch our Jewish friends pray with such intensity, now you don't have to pray the way they do. And that's what Bishop Stendhal said is you don't have to adopt their practices or beliefs, but you can be inspired by what they're doing. Yeah. So I say to my students, you see how they're praying with such intensity. How can your prayers be more intense? You hear the prayer call five times a day. You see our Muslim friends stopping wherever they are, right? Then can you pray several times in the day? And to what we're talking about today, you watch Christian friends from more liturgical or traditional communities doing things like Advent or Holy Week and say, wow, what could I do to remember what Jesus has done for me more in those yeah. periods? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's thanks for sharing so that. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, I'm in the middle of, well, I'm in the middle of rereading Casper Turkile's book about the power of ritual. Mm -hmm. And something that he talks about that I've really valued is this idea that you can create ritual by using what's already happening in your life, like what's already important to you and and give it more meaning and, and make it a spiritual practice. And to me, as I've read what you've written about Advent, that kind of feels like the invitation that, that this is already something we value. And like, here's a way to do it that will make it so simple and so meaningful. And that feels like something we're all always trying to do. I think the Latter-day Saints, particularly, you know, people who are practicing fully active, I guess is the way yep. to describe it. <laughs> 
we almost need permission to come up with rituals. Mm -hmm. But I think the inspiration for family and personal rituals is so innate in what we do. I mean, obviously the sacrament, baptism, obviously the temple ceremonies. Okay. And, and what, but what you have to do to feel comfortable with personal and family rituals is saying when they are God established and authorized, we call them ordinances. But when it's something that we do for our benefit, even if we feel like it's inspired, right? Call that a ritual or a family tradition. The other thing, my wife, when we were first dating, because I've always been a little, Hyper religious, uh, you know, and I have anyway. She she said it's great you do X Y and Z. Just don't expect me to do it, you know. And she goes, "Don't go Pharisee on me," which I have since repented of because the Pharisees were actually wonderful people, and we've mischaracterized them historically. So oh, that's, oh that's another, another conversation. conversation. That's another conversation for another time. Yep. But that's the way we used to talk about, it, right? Mm -hmm. But what we finally settled on is, if you feel inspired to do something for you, that's great. Mm -hmm. But the moment you try to insist other people do it that's where you're crossing the line, right? So she says, okay, you may have this interpretation of word of wisdom, but this is mine, right? <laughs> this may be how you mark the Sabbath. This is how I do it, right? Yeah. Now, when it comes down from FPQ 12, First Presidents of Quorum of the 12, okay, that's <laughs> authorized. That's for the community, right? But it's not really our role to tell other people how to do things. One other thing, sorry, yeah, I'm talking ahead, too much. Um, this will would have come out at some point anyway, but I have only two children. I have a daughter who used to call mini-me. I mean, mm. Rachel's just like me. Temperament and <laughs> intellectual interest. And she did ancient years and studies because I was the ancient years oh, and studies wow. coordinator when she was at BYU. And then we have a son who's special needs. We have a son who was, who was uh, diagnosed when he was three and a half with quite profound autism. And, you know, wow, the miracles we've seen in Sam's life have been amazing. But if you know people on the spectrum, one of the things that's comforting for people on the autism spectrum are what they will call in the literature rituals mm -hmm. yeah. or traditions or patterns or practices. But the reality is, you know, I when I moved from classics in 2003 to religious education and moved from being a Greek and Latin geek and teaching Greek and Roman history to teaching, you know, New Testament, mostly also Book of Mormon, you know, I I was trying to trying to negotiate this change, but I, I do everything so intensely and so intellectually. But Sam has been one of the greatest blessings, not just in my life, but my teaching. Because with Sam, I mean, with Rachel, I could say, in fact, our nativity crash she used to divide into a Mathean side and a Lucan side. Oh my so the character wow. she divided according to Matthew 1, 2. And, but with That's Sam, it was the simple message, right? Yeah. And so raising Sam, I had to go back to the basics. I had to say, what is the salient message? With Sam, talking about the historicity of the Lucan census doesn't go anywhere. Mm. Um but the fact that Jesus was divinely conceived, miraculously born, and that's the miracle of Christmas, that's what mattered. Yeah. And in all my writing since, Sam, I don't accept this dichotomy that it's either academic or devotional. It's either mm -hmm. seminary and institute or it's intellectual. I think, you know, we're supposed to worship God with all our heart and our mind. I think you've got two oars in your boat, intellectual mm -hmm. and spiritual. And so I've always tried to bring those together, but Sam has helped me do the spiritual side, I think, a little bit better. Wow. Yeah. So one of the things I'm most excited about with this conversation is that we have a chance. So the this will be released the weekend of the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which is the beginning of Advent. Right. We'll could call you, first Advent. First right. Advent. Could we? Could you talk about what Advent? Is? I know. Sure. When people sure. hear this, and I'll try to keep it simple. They see the cardboard. Not give you too many dates. calendars with chocolates, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, and that's a mistake. Yeah. Because the Advent calendar, which is 24 days. 
trays of chocolate or <laughs> figures to put on the tree or whatever. Uh, we call that Advent, but that's not what Advent was historically. So Advent, Advent comes from the Latin term by Adventus, which means the arrival, the coming. And it was a penitential period where Christians in the Middle Ages prepared themselves spiritually for the, the Feast of Nativity. It was so that they would be in the proper spiritual position to celebrate Jesus's birth. It goes back to Pope Gregory and a little bit before then. But anyway. And the Feast of Nativity is, is Christmas. Christmas. Okay. okay. And so what it was is the four Sundays before Christmas, wherever Christmas falls. Okay. And so that was an each of, uh, real quick. Uh, so yeah. in traditional liturgical churches, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, which is slightly different in the East, but in the Western European traditions, Roman Catholic, but then Lutheranism and Methodism still holds on to some of this, certainly Church of England, Episcopalianism. Mm -hmm. um, with liturgical churches, you have this concept of sacred time, which is not just your weekly Sabbath. It is you've got these monumental events, usually in the life of Jesus, that you're looking at. So preparation for Jesus' birth, that's Advent. And what that meant was in the Sundays of Advent, you were looking at the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets for telling Jesus coming and using that as an inspiration to prepare for his coming. Mm. And then you had what was called Christmas tides. So Christmas Eve, Christmas, 12 days of Christmas. They're not the 12 days before, it's the 12 days after, right? Okay. So December 25th wow. through January 5th. And then Epiphany, which is Jesus being manifest to the wise men. So that's why it's Three Kings Day. And then... You have another thing on, I think, February 2nd, Candlemas, which is the presentation of Jesus in the temple by Mary and Joseph. Mm -hmm. And then you move back into what they call ordinary time. And then the next thing is you're getting ready for his saving work. And so you have the 40 days of Lent, which is not the four days before Easter because you don't count the Sundays because those are okay. feast days. But mm -hmm. 40 days minus those Sundays it's just like Jesus was in the wilderness preparing for his ministry 40 days. We're going to prepare for 40 days of mm -hmm. fasting because you don't fast on Sunday because it's a feast day. Right. Anyway, and then you have Palm Sunday and then you have Monday, Thursday, and you've got Good Friday, and you have Easter, and then you have you have uh, 40 days ministry. So then you have Pentecost mm -hmm. and then you move back to ordinary time. But ordinary time ends up being less than half the year. Yeah. Wow. All the other Sundays are structured by these events and these seasons and these tides, as they call them, which meant the readings in mass or in the service and the sermons, all the worship would be focused on the principles of that season. Does that make mm, any sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Advent is this season, the four weeks before Christmas Eve. Okay, the four Sundays before Christmas Eve. And we can talk more about what the traditional themes of those are. Yeah. And it was all spiritual. Okay. It wasn't about the fun and it wasn't yeah. about the chocolate. It wasn't yeah. about the presence. And in fact, in some really traditional Anglican or Catholic um, households or churches, they will not put Jesus in the manger till Christmas Eve. Mm. Oh, really? And the wise men don't show up till Epiphany, oh. mm, right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I remember some of my Catholic friends, they didn't sing Christmas carols till Christmas Eve. Wow. wow. They had Advent carols. Mm. And um, I'll, I'll throw a, a shout out to my friend, Michael Young. He yeah. has put together for Latter-day Saints a book on Advent music. Okay. He serves a mission in Germany and he knows wow. that European tradition really well. Uh, yeah, yeah can, look it up at yeah, Desert yeah. Book. And cool. he has something coming out for Easter next year, too. Oh, oh that's so, great. Yeah. I love that explanation of liturgical time. I, I was reading the, uh, the Benedictine nun, uh, Joan Chittister, says mm -hmm. that, that liturgical time is, is the experience of spiritual ripening. 
Right. And I loved that way of thinking about it because that's exactly how Advent feels. It's like four weeks to focus on something so very simple so that when Christmas comes, you've had time to sit with so many different aspects of the Christ story that it really does feel holy. It feels like a, a ripening. Well, and this is, of course, the thing as we face commercialism and a more secularization of Christmas. Mm -hmm. You always hear these, you know, the war in Christmas, we've got to resist it. Or we talk about let's put Christ back in Christmas. Now, just so you know. I'm all for Santa Claus and I'm all for all <laughs> kinds of decoration and all kinds of fun because I figure- I believe you. I, if you're not watching the YouTube video, I, like you can see that yeah. this is real. <laughs> because what you do is you're harnessing the joy and excitement of yeah. your children, right? A good friend of mine, um, George Durant, wrote a book called Don't Forget the Star. I don't even know if it's still in print, but it's about different Christmases in his life. Hmm. And he has in the second Christmas is the year Santa Claus goes away. Then he has his mission Christmas a few chapters later, which is when he really understands what Christmas is about. But then the next chapter is when he proposes to his first wife, Marilyn. And as he's putting the ring on his, her finger, he sees something in the sky and it's Santa Claus saying, I'm back, George. And then he, he has this phrase and I had it all ready for the time one of my children would have some questions about oh. mythological fat men and red suits. And he said, I found that Santa Claus was not someone to get things from, but someone to give things through. Mm. Right. Oh. My point being, so have fun, but make sure you're intentionally keeping the spiritual part there. So this idea of a Latter-day Saint family like yours or mine on the Sundays of Advent, getting together for a little bit more formal family tradition or family ritual, if you want to use that strong of a term, that's going to really anchor something. Yeah. And Sunday should be more spiritual anyway. Yeah. But why stop there? And so you might point to this the seasonal blog that I've kept for years where I yeah. developed things much further than I did in my first book on Christmas that was 2011, Good Times of Great Joy. Advent celebration of the Savior's birth was its subtitle. I ended up doing this blog, which is you're sitting here. For those of you on YouTube, you can see I have a big binder. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I did is I put together something from my family to do not just on the four Sundays of Advent, but every day of December. Yeah. Not just the chocolate behind the door, right? I want something <laughs> a little bit more intentional. And and the background to that's really interesting. Our second year of marriage, so this was 1994, we had just moved here from Philadelphia where we had been in grad school. We just bought our first home, a tiny little brick box in West Provo. And my aunt had given us a, as a Christmas gift, this little Xerox copy, Xerox, <laughs> you know, bound thing with a story, a carol and a, and a scripture for each day in December. And we were young and we were still trying to have a child, and but we were trying to establish some Christmas traditions. And, and we didn't do it every day in December, but several times that first December we did. And thought, this is nice. Yeah. Well, when our daughter was born, I'm like, we're going to have a pattern for this because yeah. I'm kind of a, a AAA personality. And I, I had to have a pattern. And so I went through and reorganized it. I found new stories. But more importantly, I found something that felt restoration to me. Instead of just the traditional kind of Advent scriptures from Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah, I went through Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Royal Great Price. Didn't end up having that much from Doctrine and Covenants, actually. But what I did is I picked 24 scriptures, beginning with a prophecy of Adam about Jesus, found in the Book of Moses. The next one was Enoch in the Book of Moses. But oh. I went all the way up through, chronologically, through the Book of Mormon and uh, the Old Testament so that we'd have a scripture in order building, right? And on the 24th, it was, you know, premortal Jesus speaking to Nephi, right? It was the yeah. third Nephi, behold, tomorrow I come in the world. And so we had a, a, a meaningful scripture for each day in December, found a meaningful Christmas story, 
Oh. I'm really into music. And so I found some carols, including some primary ones. And this is our little Christmas book. Oh. And so, you know, we're going to have family prayer every day. We're always trying to read some scripture every day. It's not always very good <laughs> scripture study. We always read a few verses, right? So I thought, why not in December, before we go to bed, gather, read a fun or inspiring Christmas story. Yeah. It can be either way. Read a scripture which is laying the foundation for the magnificence of, yeah. you know, Christmas Eve. And then sing together and then have family yeah. prayer. And my little son called that doing Christmas. Wow. And, you know, Ina Filane and I were at a dinner party and we're getting home at like 11 on December 12th. <laughs> the sitter could not get Sam to go to sleep. I've got to wait because we've got to do Christmas. I've got to stay up for mom and dad so we can do Christmas. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah. so you know, no matter how fun or I sing or so I'm in concerts, I'm in rehearsals and we've got parties to go to, no matter how busy or shopping we're still going to have Christmas time every day in December and about a half hour of Christmas time each of the Sundays of Advent. Yeah. Wow. And what what do the Sundays of Advent signify? They they are distinct. They are. And and different traditions may organize these themes in different order. But the most common one, the one I stumbled upon when we were first planning this when my daughter was about three, was hope, love, joy, peace. Okay. So you start with scriptures that focus on the hope of a redeemer. For the first, the whole for, first Sunday, all hope. For that first Sunday. And, so, and what I have done in our Advent practice, you know, I, I told you I have a scripture for each day in December, but I have four or five scriptures for mm -hmm. the Advent. Yeah. Some are Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, we call it. Some are Book of Mormon. Some okay. are Progate Price, right? And so I found scriptures that are about the hope and then we find some songs that celebrate that. The traditional first carol of Advent is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You know? oh. When Craig Jessup used to be the music director of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, even though we didn't do Advent as musical yeah. spoken word, he always programmed O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on really? the fourth Sunday before Christmas. <gasps> really? Well, musicians are always keyed into this, right? Yeah. Because whether they're, you know, some of my friends are organists, some of my friends are music directors, because they do the traditional corpus of music, and organists are always working for other churches, right? So they're they're going through <laughs> land, they're going through Holy Week, and they're going through Advent. But anyway, in oh. terms, so that's what it is. So the first one's hope, the next one's love, you know. And even though it's traditionally in Advent, they're Hebrew Bible or Old Testament scriptures. How can I, not that we have a favorite gospel, but if we did, it'd be the Gospel of John. <laughs> how can you not read God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son? Then yeah. the next one is joy, and the last one is peace. Because that's the real message of Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a hard year for me because of what's happening in the Holy Land. And we're purposely, you know, the church and BYU are neutral on this. So all I'm saying about this is that psalm, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, has never meant as much mm -hmm. to me as it does now. But, you know, when we first were dealing with this conflict before we, we left Jerusalem, I remember saying to my students when they were a little scared because they'd heard a siren. So this is how people in Ukraine feel every single day. Yeah. But you know what? Sadly, you can go back to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. I mean, war and conflict have been the history of the world. And that's why the Advent theme of peace mm -hmm. is not just about his first Advent. It is about his second Advent or what we call his second coming. Yeah. So those are the traditional themes. Yeah. As I said, sometimes you'll see a church might do it in a different order. I and think do you know where the people. themes came from? You know, I never really quite got the bottom yeah. of that. Yeah. I think they just discerned them in the messages of the prophets. Okay. Yeah. 
one one image that I think probably comes to mind for people who have heard of Advent, Advent or who have had friends in other traditions uh, is this is the wreath yeah, with the yeah. candles? Will you talk about that image? Because I right. think that's I probably mean, really fun. Wreaths for have families. a broader symbolism, of course, because right. as you know, it's the everlasting circle, it's beginning and end, it's eternity, that kind of thing. And of course, uh, early on, and particularly medieval, well, it even goes back to Roman Christianity, but medieval Christianity, in particular, evergreen, right, is everlasting life. So, so wreaths always had that. But the idea of having a wreath with four candles, one for each of the Sundays of Advent, right, and so on. The first Advent, you light one of those candles. On second advent, you light that one and a second. Okay. Third advent, those two and a third. It's actually really beautiful, especially since in our family we light them every single night when we have our family <laughs> Christmas devotional. What happens is that first candle gets burned down pretty mm -hmm. far, and then the second, then the third, and the fourth. Yeah. We've got this lovely staircase, yeah. right? Oh, that's cool. And traditionally, three of those four candles are purple because it's representing the coming, the advent of the true king. Mm -hmm. The third one is traditionally pink or rose-colored. Um, it's because, remember, Advent was originally a penitential period of preparation. But that third Sunday was called Gaudete Sunday, which is Latin for rejoice. Mm -hmm. And so it was rejoice, kind of breaking the serious tone. But I love the symbolism, and I don't know if this was traditional, but I love the symbolism of seeing this image like, like the red in a green wreath you're anticipating the blood of Christ as well, right? Yeah. So even though it's joy, I'm thinking about the coming sacrifice. Do you see ways, I'm so curious if you can imagine how Advent might look in an actual Latter-day Saint worship service on a Sunday. Have you seen that incorporated into um, So I have a funny story. When I was bishop years ago, I had a counselor, Bob Clark, who had served his mission in Germany. He, he talked about how um, there's an old lady in the in the ward who brought out an advent wreath and put it out there. And everyone is okay with that. Sometimes <laughs> we used to have Christmas trees in the chapel. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Later yeah. they got moved to the foyer. When I was but, bishop, my gosh, we decked out garland on the wreaths. I mean, you said he was every, oh, In the sure. front of the chapel? Sure, sure. What? That I, is so you know, my poor parishioners, my ward members, they never said, they said, we didn't know if this week it was a Mormon service, whether it was going to be a born again evangelical service, but we always knew at Christmas and Easter it was going to be Episcopalian. Because, you know, I just, I just love the music and I love the decorating, right? But anyway, so Bob was saying that, you know, it was out there and no one thought anything about it. But after the opening hymn, the woman came up and lit the candle. Oh, she <laughs> went down, put it out. And so after the opening prayer, she came and lit it again. <laughs> so I'm not advocating that. I remember my mother telling me when she was growing up in Cedar City, Utah, they used to have a Christmas Eve candlelit service. Mm. Wow. Now, part of that is because my grandfather's a concert violinist. As I've mentioned, musicians are always kind of keyed into this. I'm not advocating doing this in church. I see these as family traditions or personal rituals, if that makes sense. Okay. Now, if I knew as much about this and loved this as much when I was bishop, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have had sacrament talks about the hope that we have in Jesus mm -hmm. on first advent. Yeah. And I would have had stuff about the love of God and love of Jesus second advent and third advent. I, so I think what I would yeah. do is I'd have talks that mention the themes. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> but if you yeah. want to have an advent wreath, that's yeah. a family tradition. Yeah. Or a family ritual. That's cool. We, um, we've talked, you've mentioned a couple, but I'm curious, usually, you know, I think even when Latter-day Saints turn to the scriptures to celebrate, celebrate Christmas, we're typically turning to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any favorites like Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price that you could share sort of Advent or Christmas related scriptures? Yeah. So um, not that I have favorite things to talk about, one of, but if I did, um, <laughs> besides Jesus, it's going to surprise you, it'd be about Mary. Mm -hmm. 
Quick anecdote, and I know we're short on time. So um, between my first stint teaching at the Jerusalem Center and when I returned a couple years ago as academic director, the only way I could see how I could get back to the Holy Land regularly is to take commercial tours, which I know sounds awful, <laughs> but it was a chance to get there. Yeah. But you, as a commercial tour person, you always have to have a local guide. And the first time I did one of these tours in 2014, I had a local Palestinian Christian who didn't like me and didn't want to share time with me. Mm. And anyway, it was just awkward for the first day. <laughs> So we get to Nazareth and we're at the Basilica of the Annunciation. And, you know, he talked about the church and the facade and the history of it. He says, okay, do you want to say something? I said, yes, I do. And I pulled out my Book of Mormon to 1 Nephi 11. <laughs> Read that beautiful part of Nephi's vision. where virgin, pure and fair, is carried away from the city of Nazareth. And she comes back holding a child. And then we find out the tree of life is actually, you know, Jesus, you know. And anyway, and I said to my group of Latter-day Saint tourists, after our Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, probably no one should have more love and appreciation for the mother of Jesus than we do. And I said, you know, Mother Eve, Mother Mary, you know, we're looking for female role models in our tradition. Here they are. Anyway, George is his name. He's taking it. He goes, brother, I can work with you now because you love the mother of our Lord. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I love First Nephi 11. Well, I love Messiah 3 when King Benjamin prophesies him. I love Alma 5. You know, the Book of Mormon is replete with the prophecies of Jesus. But then there's the sign of Samuel in the light, right? And there's the passage I already mentioned just kind of in passing. Tomorrow I come into the world, be of good cheer, Nephi, son of Nephi. So there are great scriptures like that. Yeah. By the way, George, after that, the rest of that week kept calling me father. <laughs> Every time we went to father, we'd like to teach here. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, yeah. yeah and this is why, as I was putting together, not just kind of a family Latter-day Saint Advent script, for lack of a better term, but as I was putting together scriptures for our daily December devotionals, I wanted to make sure I had lots of restoration scripture. And in my mind, that was going to be mostly Book of Mormon, but I was surprised how much I took from the Pearl Great Price because that Book of Moses had some of the full prophecies and anticipations of Jesus that we know Adam and Enoch and Abraham and Moses had which you don't see in the Hebrew Bibles that came down to us. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. We probably do need to wrap up. I, I just want to come I'm back sorry, to this. I have talked too this, much. No, oh, this, oh, this has been, been incredible. This is, it really is. <laughs> but and and you you mentioned this for a second that you were you were in Jerusalem. And I just want to I want to come back here for a second because this is so heavy right now. And I just wonder if you could talk about that. You know, with all the confusion and all the fear that's going on right now, you were you were there. You know, two weeks ago. How is that changing? the way you are thinking about peace and love and joy. I have a little it, survivor's know. guilt. You know, I, I spent Thanksgiving with my family. I'm back at the temple. I'm back in the choir. I'm celebrating Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I can't even call myself blessed because why would God give me those things and not them? So I have kind of had to say I'm fortunate. I have a dear friend in Jerusalem. He's our associate director. He's a Palestinian Christian, Tofik Alawi. And, you know, one of the things he was so excited to do about five years ago was put up a big, huge Christmas tree outside the Jerusalem Center so the entire city could see it. And his son has a uh, drum and bagpipe core. And most people don't know about Palestinian Christians, but no. traditionally up to 20% of the Palestinians were Christians. Mm -hmm. 
And anyway, the whole, all our neighbors, the Muslim as well as the Christian Palestinians come for our tree lighting ceremony. We do all of this. <laughs> Last year it was so fun. And he was glad I was coming back because he knew how much I love music and as much I love Christmas. And so then he and our staff put up this huge tree. We found out that the YMCA's tree was two feet taller than ours. <laughs> so I look out my office window. I've got a great office in Jerusalem, a great view. And I see the staff all doing something by the tree and they were putting boxes under it. So our tree would still be the Mormon tree because we're Mormon university there. We yeah. still use that term okay. there. The Mormon tree was going to be the biggest Christmas tree in the oh. city. And I'll tell you, Christmas and Holy Week are the two times of the year that the local Christians come out of the woodwork. You know, they're a minority mm -hmm. within a minority. They always keep a low profile. But we do a Palm Sunday procession. We wave those palms and come singing down the Mount of Olives. And we celebrate Easter, Christmas Eve. We go to Bethlehem. And it gives me hope because I know those who know Jesus are waiting for him to come, provide the answers. I, I mentioned in passing, I didn't mean to be flippant about it. This is called the fallen world. And this is called people that are proud and want power and are in the thrall of Satan. And the reality is Ukraine, and not as much now, and the Holy Land are gaining a lot of airtime, but there are places in sub-Saharan Africa, and there are places that because they don't fit the right categories, we don't pay attention to. But I know that God loves every one of his children, that his heart breaks for everyone who suffers. But he's so committed to our agency have the plan. And the only thing I can think is that with the eternal perspective that God and Christ have, and that presumably we all had in the council of heaven, even if we had been shown how hard this life would be and what horrible trials some of us would go through, we understood that that was going to be just a blip. And that this plan of a Jesus would make all the wrongs right. And that's why this Advent, my celebration is more about the next Advent than the last one. Because I'm going to be praying for hope, love, joy, and peace in Christ more than ever. Right now, but when he comes again. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank Happy Advent to all your listeners and Merry Christmas when the time comes. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. And we really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Eric Huntsman. And again, please check out the show notes. We've linked to some really cool resources from Eric and others that can help you get started with Advent. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.